Well, welcome again. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the book of 1 John. We are in 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 21. If you need a Bible, Mike is up and he's got Bibles in his hand. Just raise your hand and he'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21 this morning. Now we're going to cover 7 through 21, but let's just begin by reading verses 7 through 9, and then we'll hit the rest of the verses as we go along. Starting in verse 7, John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. The title of my study this morning is, What's Love Got to Do With It? Dot, 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 everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning to have your word on our laps, Lord, knowing that it's your desire to speak to our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that we have open ears to receive all that you have for us. Thank you for uh, just this wonderful time of worship. Thank you for uh, Jacob and Christina being here, Lord. We pray your blessing upon them and their ministry. But now, Lord, we pray you're blessed our time together, Lord, as we look to your word, as we look to you. Teach us through your Holy Spirit, we pray. Father, we also pray if there's anyone that has joined us this service that does not have a relationship with you, they don't have their sin forgiven, they're not born again, would you especially touch their heart today, Lord, as they uh, just uh, hear of your love and grace that you have for them. So we commit our time to you, Lord, ask your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we are back to John's favorite subject, and that is love. John's often called the apostle of love and the, the disciple that, that Jesus loved. I mean, to know and love God was John's life. If any apostle knew about love, it would have been John. He knew what love is. I think sadly a lot of people have learned what love is from whatever new popular love song just came out on iTunes, you know. There's been so many songs written about love over the years that you would think that people would have had enough of silly love songs. I look around me and I see it's not so. Some people want to fill the world with silly love songs. What's wrong with that? Well, you'd be left confused about love. Because one love song says, love is a many splendored thing. And another one says, yummy, 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 I got love in my tummy. So then is love something splendid that you eat. Maybe it's like a Christmas cookie. That's what love is, a Christmas cookie. Or maybe that's why another song warns, too much love will kill you. Or why Dion Warwick saying, I will never love this way again. No, the Bible says God is love, and the Bible says that God loves you. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you're taking notes, we're going to see three things. Number one, the source of love. Number two, the son of love. And number three, the system of love. Number one, the source of love. Now remember, John had written this to combat against the heresy known as Gnosticism. The Gnostics believed that knowledge was their way to salvation. So what John has done to combat this throughout his epistle is to give us tests by which we know that we know the truth, that we're truly saved. Some of the tests were doctrinal. What is your view of sin? What is your view of Jesus Christ? Some of the tests we've seen were moral. Uh, the evidence is that you're truly saved is if you love, you obey. If you obey, then you demonstrate that love. 
Well, now here John tells us the source of that love. Look at verse 7 and 8 again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. First John 4, 7, and 8. You guys know if you know kids and the kids song, you've sang that before. It's a great song. We've sung it for years. But it's more than that. It's a truly remarkable statement. God is love. Love has a source. It's God. But you see, only by knowing God that we learn to love. And it's only by loving that we learn to know God. Love has a dual relationship to God. Love comes from God and leads to God. Now, often we use this word love without really any understanding of the meaning of the word. In the English language, we only have one word for love, and that's love. Pretty profound. thought that all up myself. But we use the word love for everything from I love God to I love my life to, you know, I love my dog, I love my wife. Now, certainly, you know, you don't love your wife the same way you love your dog. A marriage tip, guys, our wives don't like it when you pat them on their head and throw their purse and say, fetch, okay? You'll be sleeping in the doghouse, all right? My point being is we mean different things when we use the word love. The original Greek language had different words for love. They had the, a love that spoke of a friendship love. They had a love that spoke of a sexual love. And then they had a, a word that was used to describe the love of God. It's a Greek word, agape, and that's a word that God uses towards us. It's a love that expects nothing in return. And here's what we need to know. Our love for one another can be very fickle. You know, I love you. Well, if you do something for me, then I'll love you. And then you love me if I do something for you. Or well, I love you because you're beautiful. Or I love you because, you know, you make me feel good when I'm around you. The problem with that kind of love is totally based on, on, on what you do for me. Because if there comes another day, day when you're no longer attracted to me, then I'm going to dump you. If there comes a time when I'm no longer, you know, give that good feeling, then, then I don't want to be around you. Pastor Chuck Swindoll tells this story. This is his story. I'm just repeating it. About the guy who fell in love with an opera singer. He hardly knew her since his only view of the singer was through binoculars from the third balcony. But he was convinced he could live happily ever after married to a voice like that. He scarcely noticed that she was considerably older than he. Nor did he care that she walked with a limp. Her mezzo-soprano voice would take them through whatever might come. After a whirlwind romance and a hurry-up ceremony, they were off for their honeymoon together. She began to prepare for their first night together. As he watched, his chin dropped to his chest. She plucked out her glass eye and plopped it into the container on the nightstand. She pulled off her wig, ripped off her false eyelashes, yanked out her dentures, unstrapped her artificial leg, and smiled at him as she slipped off her glasses that hid her hearing aid. Stunned and horrified, he gasped, For goodness sake, woman, sing, sing, sing. That's not the kind of love that God has for us. Isn't that great to know? Isn't it great to know that God isn't going to say, I love you when you're in church and you're walking with me when you're doing perfectly, but I I hate you when you sin. God doesn't say that. If nothing else, the Bible shows us that God loves us no matter what we do. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we're yet sinners... Christ died for us. That's God's agape love. Which means that God's love, God loves us when we're doing well. He loves us when we fail. He loves us when we're walking closely, closely to Him. He loves us when we fall short. Now that's not to say that God approves of what we do all the time. And that's not to say that God's not offended by what we do. 
It is to say that no matter what you do or where you go, God will never stop loving you. Loving you. And you need to know that about God. Let me say this as well, that there is nothing you can do to make God love you more or less. His love is unconditional, impartial, everlasting, infinite, and perfect. Now, with that said, I want you to notice what verse 7 and 8 doesn't say about God's love. It doesn't say that God loves, though he does, but what it says is that God is love. Any true understanding of God must include all the revelation about his nature. And what I mean by that is that his very nature, his very character is that of love. And that's an exciting thought to me because when you realize that God cannot and will not do anything to violate his own nature or contrary to his nature, that means he always is love. Now, certainly, we know people, uh, you know, who do that. You see somebody, you know, they do some bizarre thing and, and we go, you know, boy, that's not like them. Uh, that's so weird. They don't usually behave like that. Have you ever made a statement like that? Maybe you said that about your toddler, you know, after they just bit another kid in Sunday school. Listen, I, I, only one of my five kids was a biter, and I won't say which one she was. You can wish her a happy birthday later on, but. <laughs> Here's my point, okay? I'm in trouble after service. Other than that, it's impossible to say that's so weird. They don't usually behave like that about God. You can't say that about God. It's impossible for God to do something that is unloving. Is there something going on in your life right now? You might be thinking, well, this is an unloving thing for God to do. How could God allow this in my life? It's weird. It's so unlike God. Well, then you've got a wrong view of God's love because God is love and everything he does is loving. It's impossible for God to violate his own nature. That's why you can actually say that there are things that God cannot do. Things that are against God's nature. For example, do you know that God cannot tell a lie? It's impossible for God to lie. God cannot sin. Holiness is a part of his intrinsic nature. He cannot do otherwise. Something else. God can't learn anything new. Before he created anything, he knew all about it. There's no progression in knowledge for God as there is with man. God has no limitations on what he can create. Here's another one. You know that God can't stop being. God can't stop existing. The nature of God is infinite, meaning no end. God's unchanging moral character is a moral absolute. This includes his his holiness, his, his justice, his love, his mercy, his truth. God is who he is forever and is the only constant thing in the universe. He's the highest and the ultimate state of perfection. And in the same way, God cannot do anything that is unloving because God is love. He cannot do anything but what that is loving. So do we really need to doubt God's love? Absolutely not. Because God is love. And since the Bible says in John 3.16, God so loved the world, then you have to believe that God loves you and has only what's best in mind for you. Now, John goes on to say of this 11 verse 7, Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. That word know in verse 7 means more than just a casual acquaintance. It means to know personally. It's the same word used to describe the intimate union between a husband and a wife found in Genesis 4.1, where it says Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. 
In other words, to know God means to have that close, intimate relationship with Him. It means sharing His life and enjoying that love. So what John is saying here is that love becomes a valid test of whether or not we are Christians. If we're truly born again, then we've been given that new nature, God's nature, which is love. And since God is love, and if we say we have a personal, intimate relationship with the God of love, then there must be evidence in our lives of that love to support what we say. Because John said the opposite is true in verse 8. He who does not love does not know God. Warren Wiersbe paraphrases this verse by saying, The person who does not have this divine kind of love has never entered into a personal, experiential knowledge of God. What he knows is in his head, but has never gotten into his heart. Now, we need to remember these, these verses in context. It's not, well, all you need is love, and you can believe whatever you want to believe. The doctrine doesn't matter. No, we just covered that in the previous three chapters. Love is not the exclusive test. There's a moral test of righteousness and a doctrinal test, which is truth. John put it this way in John, 1 John three eighteen and 19. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. But remember, true love is evidence of fellowship with God. You see, knowing God is not a, a once-in-a-lifetime crisis that results in a few shed tears and a clean conscience. Knowing God is a daily fellowship and growing in Christ-like qualities with Him. If you know God, your relationship should deepen the longer you know God. Jerry Vines tells of a man in his church who he describes as the sweetest-smelling man I ever met. He said, curiosity got the best of him, and so he asked the man, what cologne do you use? You smell like a rose all the time. The man replied, well, I don't wear cologne. I just happen to work for a wholesale florist and I'm around flowers all the time. When you're around Jesus all the time, his fragrance is going to rub off on you. A person who truly knows God, who is in union with him, will be changed. A Christian will absorb the love that comes from God. So the source of all the love that we have comes from God, because God is love. Now, how does God prove his love or manifest his love to us that brings us to point number two, the son of love. Look at verses 9 through 11. John writes, In this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is one of the greatest verses in all the word of God. Here is in love. Not that we love God. I mean, He's lovable. But that He loves us and sent His Son to be the sacrifice for our sins, that's what's truly amazing. Spurgeon put it this way, if there's to be reconciliation between God and man, man ought to have sent to God, the offender ought to be the first to apply for forgiveness, the weaker should apply to the greater for help. The poor man should ask of him who distributes alms, but here in his love that God sent, he was the first to send an embassy of peace. I mean, big deal if someone says, I love God. Big deal. God loves you. That's the big deal. And the longer we get to know one another, the more amazing that becomes. So I can't believe that God will actually love you. And you say, well, you can't believe that God will actually love me. But he does. And he showed us just how much he loved us by sending his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him, verse 9 says. That term only begotten son is also used in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 17 speaking of Isaac the son of Abraham 
Hebrews eleven seventeen said, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. A picture of Jesus Christ. See, only begotten means unique, one of a kind. God had no other only begotten. Jesus is not a series of special revelations. Jesus is exclusive. He's unique. He's given uh, the designation unique for, for the times in John's writing. John 1.14, And the word Jesus was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father. See, what John is saying is, seeing Jesus is like seeing God. And seeing Jesus shows us just how sacrificial God's love is for us. See, it's not just simply, God is not simply content to tell us that God loves us. He showed us that he loved us. You may recall the story of a young American engineer that was sent to Ireland by his company to work in this new electronics plant. It was a two-year assignment that he accepted because it would enable him to earn enough money for him to marry his longtime uh, girlfriend. She had a job near their home in Tennessee, and their plan was to save money for a couple of years in order to put a down payment on a house when he returned. So they wrote each other often, and but as the lonely weeks went by, she began expressing doubts that he was being true to her, knowing that he was around a lot of pretty Irish girls. So the young engineer wrote back, declaring with passion that he was paying absolutely no attention to these other girls. But he wrote, I confess that sometimes I'm tempted, but I fight it. I'm keeping myself for you. Well, then the next mail came in, and the engineer received a package, and it contained a note from his girlfriend and a harmonica. I'm sending this to you, she wrote, so you can learn to play it and have something to take your mind off of those girls. The engineer replied, thanks for the harmonica. I'm practicing it on every night and thinking of you. Well, at the end of his two-year assignment, the engineer was transferred back to company headquarters. He took the first plane to Tennessee to be reunited with his girlfriend. Her whole family was with her, but as he rushed forward to embrace her, she held up this restraining hand and said sternly, just hold on there a minute, Billy Bob. Before you do any serious kissing and hugging, get started. Let me hear you play that harmonica. Let me hear it. She wanted proof. She wanted proof. See, our proof is that God loves us and that He demonstrated His Son, Jesus Christ. And He proved it to us in verse 7. It says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means satisfaction. In the English dictionary, it, it, it might mean uh, it's the word appeasement. And that sometimes leads people uh, to believe that God is angry with them and upset with them and that, that something must be done to appease this angry God. But that's not what the word means. It has the meaning to satisfy, to satisfy God's broken law. See, although God is love, God is also just. And that attribute is closely related to his holiness and righteousness because of this. God has then wrath and he has anger. You can have wrath and anger and still be loved. And see, this bugs people. Some people say, well, I believe in a God of love, but I don't like the God of, of judgment. What they're really saying is, I don't like the God that gives us rules. I don't like the God that gives us absolutes because I want to have my own version of spirituality. I want to do what I want to do and live the way I want to live. I, I want to have the hope of heaven when I die and live like hell in the meantime. I want to go out and break all the commandments and have all the fun that this world has to offer, but I still want to know that God loves me. See, though it's true that God loves you, it's also true that God is just. And just because He's just, there's a penalty for breaking the law. You know, some of 
us say, well, that we don't like justice unless someone rips us off. Someone steals from you. You know, the police comes and, and you file a report. Man, you want that person to get caught. You, you want justice. If someone cuts you off on the highway and the highway patrol goes after them, you're going, oh, yeah, man, there's justice in the world. Go get them. But then if you get pulled over, it's like, mercy. Oh, Lord, give me mercy. We believe in justice. There needs to be justice in the world. Guess what? God is just. That means even if you have broken His commandments and seem to be getting away with it, there's a final court that you're going to have to face one day. And because God is just, He will judge sin. The Bible says the soul that sins shall surely die. He says if we sin against Him and break His commandments, that there is a penalty for it. The wages of sin is death. doesn't matter what your defense attorney says, you're going to, not going to get out of this one. Unless, unless your defense attorney is Jesus Christ and He's there to defend you. There's no other way. Jesus Christ was sent to be the propitiation for our sins. He took our place on the cross of Calvary. He endured the wrath of God that was due us as the sins of the world were placed upon Him. The penalty for our sins was paid in full. That's love. That's love in action. And so because of that, John can say to us in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I mean, that verse is, 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 is the answer to every lame excuse not to love each other. Have you ever found yourself saying, well, uh, that person, they're just impossible to love. Not only have I heard that excuse, you know, I think I've used it a few, few, few times myself, but, but if God loved us, even when we were so unlovable, sinful enemies, we ought to love one another. He loved us in spite of our hate and our antagonism. Paul wrote this in Romans 13.8, Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. See, John writes that not only can you love, but he says you ought to love one another. In other words, it's an obligation. See, love is, love is not being nice to a person's face and then give some cutting remark, you know, when you, you turn away from them. Love is not merely tolerating that person you work with long enough until they quit or until they move. You know, it's an obligation. Now, I must make an important point here. If you do not have the life of God in you, you cannot love the way God is calling you to love. Again, God is love. His source for, for, and our source for love is found in God. And the proof of God's Son is God's Son sent to die for sin. So if you're not born again, if you're not regenerated, then you are incapable of such love unless you have the life of God in you. You cannot love like this. But if you have the life of God, and this is John's whole point, you can love like this. And the emphasis is not on a feeling or an emotion, but on, 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 but on, on acting in love. C.S. Lewis has a helpful comment on what Christian love involves. He says, it would be quite wrong to think that the way to become loving is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. Some people are cold by temperament. That may be a misfortune for them, but it's no more sin than having a bad digestion is sin. And it does not cut them off from the chance or excuse them from the duty of learning to love. If you have a cold temperament, that doesn't mean you're in sin. You know, it doesn't mean you're incapable of sin. A, but, but what it does mean is that love is different than that. Don't try to figure out if you love your neighbor, love your neighbor. Just do it. And as soon as you do this, you'll learn one of the greatest secrets when you're behaving is if you love someone, then you're going to love someone. It's like the old story, maybe you heard it before, the woman who came to the lawyer and said, I want to get a divorce, I really hate my husband, and I want to hurt him, give me some advice. So the attorney says, listen, you're going to divorce the guy anyway. 
want you to be really, really nice to him. Don't criticize him. Speak well of him. Build him up every time he does something nice. Commend him for it. Man, you'll get a lot out of this divorce if you do that. Tell him what a great guy he is for, for three months. And then, uh, after he thinks that he has your confidence and love, then give him the news. Then it'll hurt him what it hurt, you know, it'll hit him where it hurts. Well, the woman thought, I can't go wrong with this. I'm divorcing the guy anyway. Why should I speak badly about him anymore? I'm going to speak only well of him. So she did just that. She complimented her husband on everything he did. For three months, she told him what a great man he was. She acted lovingly towards him every day. And you know what happened after that relationship? You know, after three months, they forgot about the divorce and went on their second honeymoon. You see, don't just say, well, I, I need to try and find that love for someone. Love them. This brings us to our final point, number three, the system of love. Look at verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. Now, when it says that no man has seen God at any time, that means no human being, no person in their mortal body with his mortal eyes and his frame of flesh has ever looked fully upon deity. Now you might say, well, I thought that, that people saw Jesus and Jesus was God. They did, but Jesus was God veiled in the flesh. He was God incognito. He was God veiled. Paul put it this way in Philippians 2, 7 and 8. Uh, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of the bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. So Jesus came to this earth veiled in his flesh, that is, you can see his radiant glory, which he had with the Father before the foundations of the world. In fact, Jesus said that in his, his priestly prayer in John seventeen five, when he says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had before the world was. But at that time, to look at Jesus, you would not recognize that he was God. You know, if someone came up to you and said, See that guy over there? You know, that he's God. Guy over where? The guy over there. Well, no, he's not glowing. He's not floating. You know, he, he's not floating. Oh, he, he's God. No, when you looked at Jesus, he was a peasant carpenter from Galilee. That's what he looked like. So when the reality of who he was hit the disciples and struck them, they were just blown away. They were awestruck. Remember when Jesus rebuked the waves, calmed the sea, and the disciples declared in Matthew eight twenty seven. But the men marveled, saying, "What manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him?" He was kind of starting to kick in a little bit. I think he's God. Or when Jesus took Peter and James and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration and he was transfigured right in front of them, seeing him in his glory that has been veiled in his flesh, they got a glimpse of his deity. They knew he was God. And that voice that audibly spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. They saw his glory, a glimpse of his glory on that mountain. Pull back the veil of his flesh let his divine essence show through. But no one has seen God in his full essence. Now, in order to see God in his full essence, we, we need to get to heaven and we need to have new bodies. And thank God that we're going to get new bodies. You know, you can't go to heaven in these bodies. If you did, poof, you'd be dissolved. Your history. I think of Moses. Remember Moses out there on Mount Horeb and he wanted to see God and, and God said, man, you can't see me and live. So God says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Moses. You hide in the rock here and I'll just kind of cruise by you and you can see my afterglow. I'll cruise by you and I'll put my hand over the cleft of the rock. And that's paraphrase. That's not exactly, I mean, it's what the Bible says, but not exactly. But he says, I'll cover you with my hand so that when I pass by, I will remove my hand and you'll see my afterglow. Moses says, okay, cool. 
paraphrased, okay. So he's hiding in the cave. God puts his hand over it, and then Moses saw this glory of God. And it was such a radical experience that when Moses came down the camp, I mean, his face was just shining from it. Uh, he had to put a bag over it. He's walking around with a bag on his head, and, and people would go, whoa. You know, Moses said, you wouldn't believe what happened to, to me on the mountain. Yeah, I think we would, Mo. Cover your head, you know. You see, again, no man can see God and live. It was just a glimpse of the glory of God that Moses saw. So can you imagine how cool it's going to be when we get to heaven and these new bodies and we can look on God fully and experience the glory of God and be in His presence and not be destroyed. See, to be in, in God's presence, there has to be no uh, any presence of sin whatsoever so that we know that we, when we come into God's presence, there's no more sin at all. Praise the Lord. And I do believe that the Bible teaches to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. We're immediately in His presence. I can't wait. But on earth, no man has seen God. But John goes on, he says, if we love one another, in verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love has been perfected in us. See, I think what, what God is saying is this. Although others can't see God, although we can't see God physically, people can see Him manifested in our lives the, the love that God wants you to, to love. See, someone said, well, we're, 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 you know, where's God? I can't see Him. Well, do you see those Christians over there? Go hang out with them for a while. Watch the way they act. You're going to see God. Hang out with other believers. You'll see God. See, we see God in and through our lives. So then John next says in verse 13, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. Now here's something you might find interesting. The Trinity is seen in verses 7 through 13 here. Verses 7 and 8, the phrase God is love is a reference to God the Father. Verses 9 through 11, it speaks of God the Son. And here in verse 13, it's God the Spirit. John says, how do you know if you're really walking with the Lord and dwelling in the Lord? Because you have His Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit is what? It's love. I know I'm walking close to the Lord to the degree that I love people. Three times John repeats that God is love. John's proof is Jesus. Now look at verse 14. He says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. I love that phrase. He's the Savior of the world. Verse 15. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. See, John is saying to the Gnostics that would deny the humanity of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, he's saying, if you want to call yourself a Christian then you need to confess that Jesus came in the flesh to be the Savior of the world. He goes on, verse 16 and 17, And we know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. When we live a life of love, we live in God, God lives in us. And that way we know that God is with us so that when Judgment Day comes, we have nothing to fear because it's all been settled in Christ and Christ dying for you so that our standing with God is identical with Christ, with what He's done for us. Now, he goes on to verse 18, that there is no fear in love, but perfect, perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. So this morning, if you're filled with fear, it's because you're not resting in the love of God. Now, all of us, we face fears. All of us have phobias that we have to battle with. But you need to remind yourself that God loves you. And God loves me. And He wants what's best for us. Oh, you know, it might, uh, I might have cancer. I'm afraid the doctor's diagnosis. It might be malignant. Listen, God loves you. 
God is love. Well, I don't know where that, that money is going to come from. I fear I'm going to lose my house. I fear I'm going to lose my car. Listen, God is love and God loves you. Well, I don't know if I'll ever have a husband or a wife or kids. God is love and God loves you. I don't know if my kid will ever move out of my basement. God is love and God loves you. See, whatever happens to you, whatever comes into your life, you have to know that it's first filtered through the love of God. And a God who loves you and a God who cares for you and a God who is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, He's going to take care of you. Romans 8, 28, or rather 8, 38 and 39 tells us, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Someone put it this way, and I liked it. God's love is a love that is in its width opens his arms to all of mankind. It's a love that in its length never ends. It's a love that has a depth that can reach to the most wicked sinner and pull him out of the mire. It's a love that has a height that reaches up to the heavens where we will be gathered up together one day. That is God's love for us. And yet look at verse 19. We love him because he first Loved us. And what a marvelous verse to take to heart that lets you know just why you love God. We love God because He first loved us. Think about that this morning. When you were living in sin, when you were living in darkness, when you were living in rebellion, when you were living in selfishness, God loved you. And He still loves you. And the reason that He still loves you this morning, or rather the reason you still love Him this morning, is because He continues to love you because He first loved you. And if he hadn't loved you first, then you wouldn't be able to love him in the first, in the second place. See, what we do is we, we reciprocate the love that God has given to us. So let me ask you, how are you reciprocating? How are you responding to that marvelous love? Are you telling him how much you love him? Are you worshiping him? Not just Sunday morning, once in a while. Are you worshiping him daily, morning, noon, night? Are you praying to him? Are you walk, walking in fellowship with him? Are you living in obedience to him? If you love God, you're going to obey Him. You're going to serve Him. Finally, John says this in closing. Look at verse 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For you does not love his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. John goes right back to loving God and then loving one another. You can't separate the love for God and the love for your brother. You can't do that. See, you can't say, oh, I love the Lord, but I hate that guy over there. You know, I really love you, Lord, as long as that person over there doesn't come talk to me. You know, I'll be just fine. Lord, I, I, I love you, but I just can't stand that person in front of me. Wait, I'm in front of you. You can't, no, you, you cannot do that. Listen, this is God's commandment. It's not a suggestion. If you say you love me, then you will love your brother or your sister. It doesn't say if you feel like it. He doesn't say if they show you love first. He says, this is what I command you. Because I love you, you are to love. See, it might be wise for us this morning as we close in prayer, as we enter into a time of communion, that first and foremost, we examine our hearts. We understand that God is love. He loved us. He sent us then to die for us upon the cross. And so too, we need to love one another. And maybe there might be some unforgiveness. There might be some, some hatred in our hearts. Man, I can't think of a better place to come to than the communion table. And ask the Lord to examine our hearts and see, Lord, is there 
some way in there, somewhere in there, I'm not loving someone and I need to love that person. Maybe I have some bitterness that I've had over the years that I need to confess and repent of that. Has it been an opportunity for you to show love to someone and you've not chosen to do that because they've offended you or hurt you in some way? Perhaps you don't even realize you're not loving as God called us to love. We need to confess that and turn and begin to love as Jesus loved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that really it's all about your love. How you showed us you loved us by sending your son to the cross to die for us. That we would be forgiven of our sin. Lord, we thank you for this time of communion. Lord, that we could spend examining our hearts. Lord, really looking deep and allowing your spirit to convict us. Lord, if there's a person in our lives, Lord, that we have hatred for, anger towards, we're not loving. Lord, we need to confess it to you. Perhaps, Lord, we're not showing love just on, on a regular basis. We're just not, not loving, showing love to our, our spouse, our husband, our wife, our kids. Maybe we've just had this attitude of anger, Lord. And, and Lord, we need to confess that as sin as well. A lot of times it's a result, we know, God, of not spending time in your presence and in your word. So, Lord, we need to confess that as well. As, as well, If we're not spending time in your word, not basking in your love and your presence as we worship you. So, Lord, as we come to the cross, as we come to the time of communion, examine our hearts, Lord. Show us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't have a relationship with you, Lord, that they've never experienced this love, pray that they would come to know you this morning as their Lord and as their Savior. They return from their sin. Lord, help us to love as you loved. We pray. Thank you for this time of communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.